Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 3 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Oh my, immortality again. Pardon me, Eliza? This case here, Welly. It deals once again with the quest for immortality. Like so many in the archives. Well, most people consider immortality the ultimate goal of humanity. And so do many of the nefarious organizations we deal with. Methuselah's order, for one. Mm, sounds rather terrifying to me. Terrifying? Living forever, seeing all of history, mankind, and culture evolve? <sighs> you need to read this, Wellington. I think it rather makes my point. Bitter Pill, written by Bill Bloom, read and narrated by Sherry Bloom, with additional voices by Bill Bloom. April. 1895. Hong Kong. I paint mortality. The dagger draws shades of red from my victim's flesh, and my art flows across the floor or ground for its canvas. Death is a beautiful release. Immortality. That is the bitter pill. Friday, April 26, 1895. Mountains of Taipo, north of Hong Kong. I'm chasing my shadow through the mountain's caverns. You wait! Frederick is falling behind. The artificial light from his torch, aimed at my back, is the only light we brought with us. Nothing looks familiar, not even my silhouette, distorted against the rocky walls and floor. I can't wait for him. He needs to move faster. Chung Li is getting away, ahead of us, into the spiderweb of the mountain's ancient passages. Chung Li changed. I saw it, and I still don't believe it. My throat is dry. An ache is building beneath my skull, a storm of cold truth colliding with hot denial. Sweat coats me like melted ice. Even as my hand grabs the wall to steady my body, I push forward. I can't stop. Chung Li holds the secrets I need. I don't even know how to force the truth from him. Death is my weapon, but he cannot die. Frederick's shouts grow more desperate as he falls further behind. Then his light exposes my prey, the beam reflecting off tiny red eyes. The white ball of fur is topped with long ears, and its large paws propel him back out of the light. My scream, raw and desperate, terrifies me. I've never granted fear any time within my twenty-three years of life. But if that rabbit that was once a man gets away from me, then my life will be finished, because my life will never end. Earlier that same day, an undetermined location above mainland China. Papa knew how to kill. That's what brought him to Hong Kong in 1867. Knowing how to kill granted me passage to London a decade ago, after he died. Now I'm flying back to my personal hell. My pale-skinned handler, Schilling, said this assignment came straight from Dr. Sound. 
His name's not Schilling, of course. I've no need for his real name. I call the foul-mouthed fool Schilling because he gives me money. In return, I kill people who become inconvenient. When Schilling told me the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences wanted me to go to Hong Kong, I demanded twice my usual fee. I should have asked for more. I've killed 126 people, all but one, for pay. None of them made me cry, nor denied me sleep. The first thing I ever killed was an ox. I held the knife, and Papa held my hand. Blood gushed from its throat and coated my forearm. Papa kissed the center of my forehead and wiped the tears from my eyes with the cuff of his sleeve. He painted my lips red with the beast's blood and said I was now a woman. Killing never troubles me, but four straight days on board a military zeppelin may have tipped at my sanity a bit. I've started pacing in this dark cabin like a tiny koi swimming laps in its bowl. The clouds have dropped to hug this flying whale. I cannot see green grass or red rocks. Somehow not seeing the ground makes me even more fearful that this behemoth will fall. An unnatural ache throbs within my mind, drifting against my will to childhood memories in Hong Kong. The closer this ship comes to the place of my birth, the worse it gets. My hands need something to do. Never has my handler given me an assignment without at least a name or title of my intended. I am tempted to make shilling my 127th kill, no fee required. The airship reaches Hong Kong more than an hour after it was supposed to. Docking atop the police tower in downtown, I see a city I do not recognize. Ten years have passed, and the dark nights have fled this place. Electricity flows like a river of light through every street. People walk and play at an hour when they would have once slept. A horse-drawn carriage pulls up to the front steps of the police station and reminds me of my new home in London. The old man on the right horse wears goggles with yellow lenses. They help him see better in the dark. I wish his mechanical beasts also wore something to hide their large copper eyes. They never blink. They remain fixed on a life they can no longer discern, as one day followed by another. What does time mean to a machine that can be turned on or off at its master's whim? In London, they describe these horses as improved. Their legs are a mockery of life, made from gears and metal plates. These economical alternatives require neither food nor love, only a mechanic. Hundreds of these cabs trot along London's streets, albeit with the metal parts covered in fake coats of hair. But they are still new here, with the mechanics exposed. I hope this is not my ride, but then the carriage door swings open. A man, a few years older than me, wearing a top hat, hangs out like a carnival barker without a circus. His long blonde hair spills down in his face, partially obscuring his eyes. Ah, oh, you must be the Jade Dagger. I glare at him. You are late. He rolls his eyes. Oh, one of those types. Come along. He disappears back into the carriage and leaves the door open for me to climb in. The carriage carries a third passenger, an open bottle of miju. The scent of cheap rice wine wafts from the back of the carriage where the Englishman lounges. I sit across from him. He pounds the ceiling with the top of his gold-tipped cane. Take us to Dr. Manson's house. When the carriage doesn't move, he sticks his head out the window and shouts the request again, this time speaking it in exaggerated Mandarin. The carriage jerks forward. A synchronized clip-clop of the horses discomforts me, almost as much as this smiling fool. He reeks of weakness, falling far short of my expectations for an agent of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. 
I refuse to look at him, staring out at a street I once knew. So, I hope you're here for a good hunt. Just tell me who I'm here to kill. Well, I'll be sure to let you know if I find someone who requires killing. The way he says this makes me realize why Schilling was vague. I've not been sent here to paint mortality. They are paying me to accompany this fool through a place I hate. I'm Agent Frederick Talbot. I'm with the Ministry of Peculiar Drugs. I know of the Ministry. My disdain keeps him silent. Men and women who meddle in matters that wiser demons would leave undisturbed. He licks his lips like a drunk and lazy lion rising to my challenge. You're not with the Ministry, so just who do you work for? My orders to work with you didn't say. What is it you do? I clean up the mess you and your agents leave behind. Actually, we have another department for that. One thing we all share in common, though. We serve Queen Vic, don't we? I take in his suit, which doesn't quite fit, and wonder if its original owner is still alive. He is not the gentleman he pretends to be, and he believes that cleverness. We are not the same. Frederick laughs and points at me with his cane. Well, you have so much lovelier parts. I'll not argue that. I might have to sleep with this man. While I do prefer the men of the West, I can't say that I find Frederick all that enticing. When I started killing, I was young enough to pass for a boy. These days my body betrays me, but I've learned to use it to my advantage. I've also accepted the value of laying there and doing nothing. I'd rather let him think me a bad lay than waste my energy fending off his inelegant efforts to court me. You will call me you, or Miss Sharp. If you do not, I will find a mass grave and add you to its population. You are a witty thing. He sprawls across the back seat and closes his eyes. Wake me when we get there. He says, and then quickly sits up to look at me and add, Miss Sharp. I decide to watch for any mass graves. The familiar outline of Hong Kong stirs memories I prefer left beneath the dust of time. The unwelcome company in the carriage makes it all too easy to surrender to the stream of past pains that threaten to destroy me. Hong Kong. My mother cries. She does not think I hear, but being a child does not make me deaf. No man will want her. Papa laughs. You want her wake? Even after more than a decade in Hong Kong, he doesn't understand these people. He's teaching me to hunt. Today I tracked a fox through the forests. Father pierced its heart with an arrow. I'm eager to learn the bow and arrow too. A boy laughed at me on the street this morning called me a dog without fur because my face was dirty. I broke his nose. While Papa and I were gone, the boy's father came to our house and complained. Mother cries. Papa laughs. She taught the boy a lesson. Papa is cleaning his gun. He's going to show me how to care for guns, too. Even the noisiest monkey knows to shut its maw if it can't win a fight. I giggle into the palm of my hand since I'm supposed to be asleep. Our daughter will never find a husband. Mother reminds me of the boy. She will plead, but she doesn't know how to give her words any strength. This place has taught her to serve and to suffer. She will starve to death. I think father knows he will die young. Mother would have starved without him. She will die beside him. I will never go hungry because he is showing me how to survive. Eighteen ninety five, Doctor Manson's house. 
save for the heat, which does nothing to ease my headache. Dr. Manson's home almost convinces me I'm back in London. His office has four walls of books and windows. Frederick and I sit across from our host. The doctor is a short man, a detail emphasizes. He sits behind his rather large, ornate desk of carved black wood. He has better sense than Frederick and is not wearing some absurd coat or tie, just a dress shirt with black pants and a paisley vest. He is sweating worse than Frederick, though. He has a pronounced stomach. We still don't know how they found out, he says. You mean the leaders of the insurrection? I noticed Frederick's ill manners improved dramatically for the elder physician. What are they calling this? Skirmish. The doctor sits up. They are trying not to call it anything. More than 500 villagers to the north were killed during six days of conflict. Seems even the other side prefers to dust this one under the rug. Especially since none on our side were killed. Frederick grunts his disappointment. You'd think these people would be grateful for our presence. Cleaner running water, electricity, even law and order. The older gentleman laughs at Frederick's observation. I believe many of them are, but the expansion of our presence into the northern territories of Hong Kong was not what provoked the conflict. Not exactly. I consider telling the scientist he is a fool to believe that. These imperialists are convinced their campaign is driven by divine powers and not greed. What started it, then? Frederick asks. The doctor clears his throat and stands to close the shutters of his windows. Frederick and I both eye the thin, dark brown packet on his desk, which bears the wax seal of Hong Kong's governor, and contains the official orders for whatever our true mission here might be. The doctor has not opened it. Its contents are not meant for his eyes, with their delicate morals. He walks round to the front of his desk to be closer to us, and lowers his voice. You both should understand that this is the first time I've voiced this matter with anyone other than the governor since I became involved. I notice the doctor's gaze hesitates more with me. I say nothing. He retreats from my gaze and stuffs tobacco into the bowl of his smoking pipe. We believe the leaders of this uprising discovered the real reason we've extended our lease with China for this area. They learned what we've been looking for. Dr. Manson's hands shake as he lights his pipe. Immortality. While I manage to keep my own opinions concealed, Frederick's skeptical laughter shatters the tension Manson is attempting to conjure as if he were a magician working with the blackest of art. Immortality. Are you having a lock at our expense, old man? In the past century, we've made major advancements with technology. We've harnessed steam to power ships. Our vessels now seek the darkest depths of the ocean. Our most brilliant minds have even captured lightning in the proverbial bottle, illuminating our cities and pushing back the night. We have conquered the skies with our airships. How long before we build a vessel that voyages into the heavens themselves? Manson leans closer, his voice dropping to a whisper. Technology has elevated man closer to the gods than we have ever been. He holds up a finger to stop any reply. Only our mortality limits us. And that, Mr. Talbot and Miss Sharp, is one thing our technology has proven unable to overcome. The doctor pulls back now and sits on the edge of his desk. Imagine if our most brilliant minds were able to live hundreds of years instead of decades. Think of the advancements. Forgive me. Frederick says with an impatient glance towards our unopened orders. But if you're looking for longer life, then I'm not certain why you would look here. The Black Plague still kills people here by the thousands. I know Frederick is correct. Anyone who's lived here knows the signs. I've seen the swelling beneath people's arms and about their groins. 
I spared the life of the man who killed my papa, because I saw the marks of his illness. I chose to let him suffer. The doctor, who sees only a pretty young lady and not the skilled killer I am, looks to me and smiles. Come, Miss Sharp, surely you know of what I speak, do you not? I nod, but I make no effort to hide my low opinion of these fairy tales. The pill of immortality. Precisely. This country's legends speak of men and women achieving enlightenment and eternal life, being so connected with the very essence of nature that they could alter their form from man to beast or child to adult. Dr. Manson points to a painting of the eight immortals that hangs over his cold and empty fireplace. One of your fellow agents in the ministry, Reginald Coffey, even found evidence some of these immortals actually existed, documentation that suggests they are more than simple fantasies wrapped in morality tales. He walks over to the painting and stares at it. There are so many native legends regarding immortality. One tells us of a tree hanging above an abyss with a rare spiritual fruit, which one need only eat. Another legend speaks of a mountain that these immortals carved up, forming a vast network of caves trying to find a pearl buried within. We believe this mountain is north of Hong Kong, and that they hid the key to immortality, whatever form this key may take within its caverns. Frederick leans back in his chair with a bored look on his face. And you actually believe you will find this whimsy? I see the doctor's eyes shift to the side, appearing embarrassed in the face of Western scepticism. Moments later, we exchange our farewells with Dr. Matson and go to our carriage. This time, despite the odor of alcohol, I join Frederick on his side. I watch as he opens our instructions. Frederick reads them aloud. The man circled in the photograph was seen in the company of the insurrection's leaders on more than one occasion. Find this man and take him alive. He hounds me the picture, and a black circle brings my eyes to a man with long black hair, a slender goatee, and large teeth. I don't suppose you recognize him? Something stirs within my mind, somehow easing my headache a bit. Is there something to this man's face? I find my thoughts drawn back to the painting of the eight immortals above the doctor's fireplace. I force myself to focus on the photograph, but no name or memory connects with the man in it. I shake my head in defeat. I take it you wish to start our search tonight. You really want to traipse through this hellhole in the heat at midday? My discomfort with Hong Kong has nothing to do with the heat, but I choose not to argue. I'm eager to finish this task and return to London. Very well then, Miss Sharp, oh expert in the local ways. Where shall we begin? I hand the photograph back to Frederick. Where you will always find men at night. Eighteen eighty five, Hong Kong. I see the black smoke from five blocks away. I'm five blocks from home. A wagon screams down the road. A man next to the driver rings a bell, warning all to get out of its path, but I do not move. They carry a large barrel on the back, with hoses running from it. Two passengers cling to the top of the barrel as the wagon swerves to avoid me. They are part of the local fire brigade. I already know they're wasting their time. There's a dead rabbit in my hands. I killed it while I was hunting this morning. I ran home to show it to my father. My mother would have been furious. My smile would have taunted her the entire time she cooked it for our dinner. I will have to cook it myself, though. Home is no longer there. 1895, Lindhurst Terrace. 
The whores still hate me. They paint their faces. They remind me of the dolls in some of London's shop windows. They are toys for Hong Kong's men, who also hate me. The electric street lamps shine through the windows of the brothel, so I can better see their scowls. They cannot stomach a woman's defiance, nor one who dresses in trousers. You must ask them your questions, I tell Frederick. They do not wish to see or hear me. This brothel is not the first one we've visited since leaving the doctor's house. We've also gone to tea houses and opium dens. None in those places give us a name for the man in the photograph, not until we visit this house of whores. Frederick shows the photograph to several customers waiting to be serviced. A man in a blue shirt, all too eager to bow his subservience to this Western imperialist, provides a name. Chung Lee. Frederick smiles and puts an arm around his shoulders. He pulls him close as if he is a dear friend, but I do not miss the sly look in Frederick's eyes. The hug will prevent this man from running if the notion should strike. How do you know this man? The brothel's customer smiles and nods as deep as Frederick's hold on him permits. He is a priest. He helped my sister when she was sick with the plague and healed her. That is excellent. Frederick laughs and pokes the man in the chest with a corner of the photograph. I too have need of a priest with such skills. Where can I find him? The question fills the brothel's customer with dread. He tries to bow his apology and stammers. I do not know where he lives. Frederick's smile loses its friendly quality. If you don't know where to find him, then how did you? Relief smooths the customer's face. This answer he knows. Dr. Manson brought him to us. He and Chung Li are good friends. Dr. Manson does not smile during our second visit. He wears a night jacket this time, and his hair is disheveled from sleep. He stands in front of his desk. None of us sit. Frederick is the only one who smiles. You didn't tell us everything during our last visit, Doctor. The doctor wipes the crust of sleep from his eyes. You have my apologies, Agent Talbot, but I'm certain I've given you all I can. I appreciate that, and I'm sorry to disturb your sleep. Frederick looks over his shoulder at me, and with a shift of his eyes, he directs me to move behind the scientist. We must discuss a friend of yours. The doctor watches me move behind him until I am standing at the side of his desk. He would have been wiser to watch Frederick. The ministry agent slams his open palm into the bridge of the doctor's nose. Frederick stifles the doctor's screams as he grabs him by the throat, lifts him, and pins him to the top of the desk. Frederick holds out his hand to me. Knife. I grip my dagger by the blade, offering its hilt to Frederick as my father once offered it to me. Thank you, Miss Sharp. He still smiles as he stabs the dagger through the doctor's left hand and pins it to the desk. The doctor's screams meet the wall of my hand. There are homes too close by. His cries will be heard even at this hour if we are not cautious. Chung Lee. Frederick grabs a handful of hair and pulls the doctor's head into a position that forces him to meet his eyes. You will tell us where he is? Or Miss Sharple. What? Kill me? I slowly remove a long pen from my hair and hold it in front of the doctor's face. I let its tip press into his forehead. You are going to die, I say. The longer you lie, the longer you suffer. He tries to pull back from the pen, but Frederick's grip on his head gives him no retreat. You've betrayed your queen, doctor. I've betrayed nothing! Frederick looks up at me. Cut him. He pushes the doctor's head down and covers his mouth again. I'm realizing Frederick is not as weak as I suspected. He is water, which conforms to a provided space. 
Keep his head still, I tell him. I grab one of the doctor's earlobes. I place the point of the hairpin against his flesh and push it through with great patience. This spills much blood. When the screams reduce to whimpers, I withdraw the hairpin. Chung Lee. Where is he? The moon shines through narrow openings in the forest canopy, forming scattered blades of light. Chung Li lives in these woods on the slopes of a mountain north of Hong Kong. Are you familiar with this place? Frederick whispers. I nod. We are near where I hunted many times with my father. This trail leads up into the mountains. Chung Li's home lies near the end of this path. The musky scent of wet earth reminds me of the day he let me kill a boar. Its body shuddered and struggled to crawl away but it only swam in place, pushing leaves aside with its hooves. Ragged breaths and pained squeals gasped from its snout. The memory is so vivid it is palpable. Papa gives me his dagger and taps between its shoulder blades, the best place to stab it in the heart. Most animals don't hunt for her to spite. They don't deserve to suffer. What about men? Depends on the man. Nothing scarier than a man's last moments, the time between when they know they're going to die and when death finally happens. He taps my intended target, that merciful spot between the boar's shoulders. Frederick's voice draws me back from the memories that threaten to drown me. These memories are getting worse, more distracting, and I fear Frederick will notice my weakness. Just remember, we want him alive. I can hear the taunt in his words. Perhaps you can kill him after we have what we need. He knows I am still displeased that he held me back with Dr. Manson. Chung Li's house is a little more than a hut. We find it off the road just where the doctor said it would be. The front door sits cracked open. Faint light beckons us. We pause, well hidden behind a grouping of trees. Just as we are going to discuss our approach, Chung Li emerges from the front door. He looks in our direction. Join me, please, he says in perfect English. The man has been expecting us. The realization worries me. I can think of no reason for a man to invite an assassin and a spy into his home. Frederick shrugs. No point in hiding now. We step out from our hiding place. Chung Li smiles to us. The sincerity of the priest's smile is not what I expect. This angers me. We cannot see the trap if there is one. Something in me knows no trap exists. That certainty fuels my desire to run away. But I force myself forward. Frederick enters the hut first. Chung Li sits behind a small table. There is a pot of hot tea and three cups. A candle on the table burns, providing our only source of light. Welcome to my home, Miss Sharp and Mr. Talbot. Will you share tea with me? Frederick draws an Ediswan incapacitator from his coat. The black metal weapon resembles a handgun, but the long, fat barrel has no opening, only a pair of fangs to release an electrical charge sufficient to shock the fight out of a charging tiger. I pull out my dagger. Chung Li sighs and pours the steaming brew into just one cup for himself. You believe I intend to poison you, but I do not. His gaze turns to me. You must not forget the seed, because the seed is the true source of life, the sense of beginning that promises an end, even when there is none. You must come with us. Frederick points his weapon at the priest. Chung Li glances at the incapacitator the way others mildly regard an unattractive newcomer to a crowded café. He sips his tea and then sets the cup back down. Are you sure you will not share my tea? He looks up, but then shakes his head. No, of course not. I do not know why I tried to ask when I already know what must follow. Such a pity. He reaches for one of the empty cups, the one closest to me. 
Miss Sharp, do not forget to eat it all. You must finish it. Frederick and I exchange mirror expressions. With this man in London, they would place him in bedlam. Then Chung Li turns over the cup meant for me and snuffs out the candle with it. The sudden darkness blinds us. Something lunges past us. I know it must be Chung Li, but I feel fur. Frederick shoots his incapacitator. The crackling tendrils of blue lightning only stab into dirt, sending up wisps of smoke into the moonlight. The chase begins and leads us back into the night towards the mountain. What I see makes no sense. I see Chung Li run from us. Then a trick of moonlight seems to distort his shape into something else. There's no time to think on it. My heart pounds, muscles protest, and lungs ache as I struggle to catch our quarry. We're too late. He reaches the entrance to a cave and disappears into his black maw. Frederick is much farther behind. He turns on the artificial light of his torch, but we get separated. I stumble through the caves. My hands run along the jagged walls to guide me now that my eyes cannot. How long this lasts, I cannot say. Frederick calls to me, but the voice is distant, sometimes ahead and then behind. Finally, a faint light from cracks in the floor draws me forward. I run towards the light, but then the ground collapses beneath me. I'm falling through light and mist, flying down with the rubble. I cannot see how deep this pit is, but it reaches far enough into the earth for me to realize and accept I will die when I reach the bottom. My fall stops, but it's not with some crash or crack that leaves my body broken. I simply stop, standing on ground I cannot see. The mist is not gray or white. It is a light with every layer of the rainbow. The air smells sweet and wet. I turn to see a peach tree with a thick and ancient trunk. Dr. Manson's words return to me. I have fallen to the abyss of which he spoke, and found the tree with its fruit, the pearl, the immortals hit within the mountain. A limb bends, reaching down to me, and offers its fruit. A peach with white and fuzzy flesh drops into my hands. Hunger grips me, a desire that reaches into my soul. The fuzzy flesh gives way to my teeth. The white peach's juice and guts surrender to me. Even though the taste is bitter, the flavor overwhelms me. I cannot stop myself because it tastes so full of life. You must finish it. My moan stopped short, a sound I was not even aware I had been making as I ate the white fruit. The man I found and chased is there. Chung Li. You must finish it. He says again. I don't understand. I feel dizzy, partly from standing within this swirling mist and from something in the fruit. I drop the pit as I reach for my dagger. Chung Li frowns, but I don't think he's upset by my threatening pose. He merely looks disappointed. I am truly sorry, my child. It is too late. He turns, leaps into the tree, and does the impossible. The man is now a monkey. He swings from limb to limb until he drops to the far side. He is Chung Li again, but his hair is white. His body shrinks and his skin pales. Ears grow long and reach up, even his whiskers sprout from what is now a pink nose, directly above a pair of buck teeth. Realization sobers me. Chung Li is one of the immortals Dr. Manson described, a being in tune with nature, incapable of adopting any form. The white rabbit bounds away. In a way I cannot explain, I know as sure as sunrise that if I let him escape, I will be damned for eternity, and so I run. Even as I take the first steps, I feel a damn slip within my mind. Memories flood me. Panic seizes my heart tight as the thread of my timeline unravels. The ache within my skull screams as the strands of my memories, past, present, future, snap. 
I reach in desperation for any single memory to ground me, and by cruel fate, I grasp the place and time that drove me from Hong Kong, the day my parents died. Papa's killers are gone. I still hold the rabbit I hunted and killed. I kneel beside Papa's body. He has already gone cold and rigid. His legs are sprawled across his wooden arhat bed. His back is on the floor. His eyes stare as if they can see through the ceiling to the sky. His blood is pulled about him. The congealed liquid sticks to my toes and my knees as I hug his chest. Then I hear Mother. She's on the other side of the room. Papa's killers beat her, but did not finish the job. Her arms are bent at unnatural angles. Someone has ripped and cut her clothes. A slice to her forehead has covered her face in red, and her hair is matted against it. I feel as though I have seen this moment before, but I will see it again. Her chest shudders as she struggles for a breath. She needs the air in her lungs to live, but taking it in pains her. She prays to her ancestors for the pain to end, begs for their mercy. I will show her the mercy her ancestors have failed to provide. Then I am back in the caves, chasing Chung Li. I've lost the white rabbit. Frederick shouts for me to stop, his voice echoing through the caverns. My head hurts as the unraveling of my life crushes my mind from within. I am lost. Damn it! Frederick catches up and grabs me by the arm. What's wrong with you? I shove him against the rocky wall. We have to find him again. You're chasing a rabbit! Get a hold of yourself! He pushes me back, and that he can make me stumble from him drives home how exhausted and weak I am. My hands shake, and I cannot stop them. He is the rabbit! I scream. You're out of your damned mind, woman! He is more right than he knows, because my mind is already slipping away from me again. I resume the chase, but part of me knows this pursuit will never end. Much like the Western myth, I have eaten forbidden fruit, and now that my eyes are open to the horrible truth, I cannot close them. Not from my past, or from my future. My future. I see only stars. The sky doesn't end. I cannot find the horizon because none exists any longer. My body drifts in the realm of the gods. I am lost in the heavens. They are endless. I am endless. The fate I cannot cheat makes me scream, but there is no sound. I gasp, but there is no air. I am a fool. I have forgotten I no longer need to breathe because I cannot die. I can only cry. I stumble out of the caves. The rabbit is gone. Chung Li has fled. My body crumbles to the ground as my mind can no longer hold on to one moment, plucking at the random strings that are snapping apart. I scream at the night sky, and its endlessness pulls at my soul like a cruel taunt. I am the night sky, because I too shall never end. Each day is now every day, even my worst. I plunge my papa's dagger into my mother's chest. Her eyes bulge, her breath catches. I'm ending her suffering. All I see is her shock, and I know she believes this is a betrayal. Papa points between the shoulders of the boar. They don't deserve to suffer. Frederick pulls me from the ground and rests my head in his lap. You! What happened after I lost you in the cave? What's wrong? I see my mother's broken body. She must know she's dying, but the look in her eyes as I stop her heart tells me I am wrong. When I burn the house, I'm cauterizing the wound in my heart. 
I will not cry as I carry the rabbit in my hand down the street, because I choose to forget that look in my mother's eyes. I do not wish to remember my first kill. Every kill after that puts more time between me and the accusation and misunderstanding. But time, time is lost to me now, and the day she dies is now every day. Then I am back in Dr. Manson's home, before Frederick and I are seated in the office, and I realize this is our first visit, before we know he is a traitor. The doctor stares up into the painting of the eight immortals. Have you ever really considered what immortality might be? I don't understand your point. Frederick shifts in his chair and glances back at the desk and the large sealed envelope on it. The doctor faces us. Immortality is about being timeless. His posture and tone remind me of the Westerners' preachers. Consider that. Time defines us. His brows pinch together as he sees we are confused and bored with this matter. We are here to carry out an errand from Queen Victoria, not to discuss wild fantasies, even if they are what drives these imperialists in this corner of the world. When I became a doctor, I often saw time as an enemy. But the longer I practiced the healing arts, the more I realized that mortality is not a punishment from God. Our ability to set time to track the line of our lives from beginning to end is a gift. To achieve true immortality, one must be able to parse himself from that concept of time. But I do not believe the human mind can grapple with such a thing. He turns back to the painting. I think he is saddened that his sermon is falling on deaf ears. Then I see what I missed when I first lived this moment, the painting of the eight immortals. I recognize a face there, the man with the long hair and goatee, Chung Li. Like the mechanical horses that brought me here, I feel my eyes widen at the horrible truth of my altered life. I can no longer see the natural order of my time, one that will now never end. I drift from one scene to the next, sometimes conforming to my predestined role, forgetting my fate just long enough to do what I will or once did. I have received immortality, but not enlightenment. The doctor speaks again, and my horrific realization is lost as I am thrashed back into blissful ignorance for a short moment. No, my young friends. The longer I am here and search for the secrets to eternal life, the more certain I am that immortality can only be a bitter pill. Bill Bloom discovered his love for the written word while in high school and has been writing ever since. His debut novel, Gideon's Hunt, was published last year by Fable Press. His short stories have been in many fantasy anthologies and various easings. Just like the father figure in his first novel, Bill works as a 911 dispatcher for Henrico County Police and has done so for more than a decade. He's also a board member for the James River Writers and served as the board's chair for 2013. You can learn more about Bill and his stories by visiting his website, www.billbloom.net. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com.
For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Dawn's Early Light, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print and digital formats. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.